HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Peter Leem, author of the new book, Champagne. We'll talk to Peter about champagne, the wine, and the book. We'll pop a bottle of the bubbly for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. 
Peter Leem is an award-winning American wine writer and author of the new book, Champagne, The Essential Guide to the Wines, Producers, and Terroirs of the Iconic Region. He is the author of the online site ChampagneGuide.net, a comprehensive guide to the wines and producers of Champagne. Peter splits his time between New York and is the only English wine writer living in Champagne. Peter is the co-creator of Le Fête Fête de Champagne, a celebration of Champagne, and Sherry Fest, one of the world's largest sherry events. He also co-authored the book Sherry, Manzanilla, and Montilla. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Sam. Peter, we have a lot to cover. (laughs) There's a lot to cover about Champagne and about your book. So I want to jump into it. But before we get into it, I want our audience to get a little idea about your background. So give us a quick background on your journey in life and Champagne that got you to Current, which is the book that you're out promoting right now, Champagne. (laughs) So I've been working with Champagne for over 20 years. Um, I became interested in food and wine uh, as a teenager traveling in Europe. Um, following, uh, uh, well, I guess when I graduated from college, uh, the, the first job I got um, was at a wine store in San Francisco. And that really set me on, uh, on this path of, of my wine career. It was, um, it was an extraordinary opportunity and, and you know, formed a, like a cornerstone of, of my wine education. Um, but I immediately also started visiting Europe uh, specifically for wine. And, um, you know, I was going to Burgundy a lot uh, at, at the time. That was, um, that was my first real love in the wine world. But, um, but I, began, I began visiting Champagne, too, uh, in 1997. And one of the things that drew me into Champagne was, was really what was going on on the ground. It, this, was, this was a time where we were just starting to see the seeds being planted um, of, of what we think of as the contemporary champagne, you know, environment today. Um, there, we, in some cases, there was a new generation taking over, um, you know, with like bringing new ideas. Um, um, there were people who were dissatisfied with the way that they were farming. Um, you know, dissatisfied with, uh, with, I guess, you know, how how they were working in the vineyards and the cellar, and and really, and it was. It was a time too when champagne was just starting to become influenced by the outside world. You know, um, How? Well, I guess in what's funny is that you know f- historically French wine regions are fairly insular. Like you know for you know for a Burgundian to go to Bordeaux, would, I mean that's like going to another planet. <laughs> you know, really? Like, uh, back back in the day. Um, you know today, of course, like winemakers travel you know more than we do, right. and they they know more people in the wine world than we do. but uh, but that wasn't always the case. and And so I think that that you know when you saw this new generation come into a region like Champagne, and you know people who had studied elsewhere, you know who had, who had maybe gone to wine school in, in you know California or Australia instead of you know just going to the school in Avis, uh, then um, um, you know they they necessarily bring with them. New ideas. So this generation left the area to study, see the world. Oftentimes, yes. Unlike the past, where it yes. was insular mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that sense. And um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I worked in the wine trade for for quite a while. What do you mean by wine trade? I, I know the trade part of the industry, I, but quickly tell me. Yeah, what you I, I was I was a retailer. I was a sommelier. I 
I owned a wine bar uh, for, for a few okay. years in Portland, Oregon. Um, I moved to New York in 2003. And in 2004, I, uh, I started working for Wine and Spirits magazine. And um, so I was tasting director there, and, and I was a senior editor and a critic. Um, but, you know, I had never really intended on being a wine writer. Um, I always envisioned myself, you know, in, in the wine trade. But um, So while you were writing, you thought this is impermanent or not my passion? Or well, uh, You liked it. But yeah, you know, I, I enjoyed my time at Wine and Spirits, and, and it, it introduced me, you know, to, to this, I guess, this whole other side of, of wine appreciation you know, being just a shameless, critical side. a shameless plug and we'll get back to it josh green mm-hmm. will be on december 13th for our annual year-end show oh excellent and josh is a good guy and i'm sure he gets a lot of info from you <laughs> no no josh josh is a great guy all and, right uh, so you you wrote at wine and spirits for a while i did i did in and so and you were a tasting Director, I was tasting or director, the tasting at, person. At, uh, yeah, I was tasting director at Wine and Spirits, um, which uh, you know, which is a challenging but but a rewarding job. Um, but you know, through all this time, I was I was heavily focused on champagne and and um, yeah, continuing to follow the region very closely, continuing to make you know trips every year, you know, in many cases, multiple times a year, and at. At some point, I realized that this wasn't enough. Like, I, what I, what I was really looking for was was depth. You know, it was depth of experience, depth of, of education, depth of knowledge. And I realized that the only way I was going to gain that was to spend more time in the region. Like, you know, going going once or twice a year, you know, for a, a week or two at a time. That's just not enough. And and so at the end of two thousand six, I I left New York and and. Um, and moved to Champagne full time, uh, living in the village of DZ. And uh, and so I lived in Champagne for for six years, uh, full time. Um, so two thousand six to almost to twelve. Twelve, yeah, yeah. You would travel back and forth, but that was yes, your primary course, residence. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that was uh, yeah. But um, but I spent you know the majority of the year in in Champagne. Um, in two thousand nine, I started ChampagneGuide.net, um, you know, as as a way, I guess. You know, to to really explore the region in depth. So the inspiration was you were there. There was so much information yeah. to share. Yeah, you yeah. finally embedded yourself. <laughs> so let's share the. Yeah, yeah, and having yeah having a platform to you know work through work through my ideas and uh, and to you know report on on things that I found. Right. Um. And. So in 2011, I, I left Wine and Spirits, uh, and um, and since then I, I've been you know, a full-time independent writer, um, you know, f- uh, doing some freelance work, but you know, right. focusing on ChampagneGuy.net, uh, writing books. Um, um, you know, following uh, after 2012, I, I moved back to New York, but um, but I continued to I continued to spend uh, spend essentially half the year in, really? in Champagne. Um, I, yeah. I'm, uh, I mean, today. What I'm in, was I'm in the Champagne. reason uh, you had spent the time and oh, in I got France. I got, uh, you just wanted to get back, and I was homesick. Really, you were homesick. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I was frank. looking for, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, Knowing you'd I go mean, back. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I. So, what year was that? Uh, that was the end of 2012. That I came 12. Back to New York. But and you eventually went back. Well, I mean, 
Yeah. So today, today, really, I split time between Champaign and New York City. Um, I own a house in Epernay. And so uh, I'm, I'm in, in Champaign literally every other month. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a nice change of, it's a nice change of pace, uh, you know, on, on both sides. So there's one blank you have to fill in for me. <laughs> um, what was the point, when was the point, or what was your compulsion, or when did you decide it's champagne? I mean, was it tasting something? Was it the first visit you were overtaken? I mean, you made a big leap <laughs> to just champagne, and, and you're the guy, but I'm still that moment where it became champagne and not looking back. Well, I think that, uh, uh, I mean, there are multiple answers to that. Um, one, champagne is delicious, so it's, you know, there, there are certainly worse things okay. to drink. Um, but, but, you know, my interest was, was always very academic from, from the beginning. Uh, um, as a, you know, as a wine writer, uh, I mean, especially, especially in this time period, like, um, you know, in, in the early 2000s, a lot of wine regions had been, had been heavily explored, right? There was a lot of literature written about a lot of different wine regions. And a lot of good books written, a lot of good articles written, a lot of uh, you know people um, you know working really hard. There wasn't so much in Champagne, and what was being written in Champagne was often not not quite current. And um, and so you know, like I said, what I was seeing you know happening on the ground in Champagne was very different than what I was reading in books because it was. You know, I mean, this this was new. This was uh, this was a region that that was rapidly changing, and and so so intellectually, uh, that became very interesting to explore. And and because I was experiencing that firsthand, right. um, you know, it, it was it it became uncharted territory. Right. And and that's that's very unusual in the wine world. I mean, you have emerging regions, but to have a a region that's so famous and so old as Champagne, and to have this kind of energy of an emerging wine region that's that's very unusual and with with no great coverage yeah, current yeah or whatever yeah and so that that was something that that I, I really wanted to document yeah it makes perfect sense um i don't think we're gonna have enough time to talk about the history of champagne <laughs> um, it's long i yeah <laughs> and i want to sell books and i encourage people to look out and buy peter's book and you'll get a really good uh, dose of the history of champagne. What I want to key in on is two areas, and that's transformation and terroir. And I think you alluded to transformation already. Mm -hmm. And terroir is a very strong theme throughout the book, which I want to talk about. So my first question is, champagne has gone through a very dramatic transformation Mm -hmm. in the very recent you know past yeah, yeah um you could tell me how many years 15 20 25 what is that transformation you talked about it a little with growers and all that but tie it together for me yeah so i think that you know uh i think that to put it very simply we are finally treating champagne as a real wine that's us as consumers uh, but then also the producers themselves. It's coming from, from both sides. And, and this manifests itself in, in many different ways. So, so 
you know, the thing is that, that when, when you talk about contemporary champagne, you know, oftentimes people will talk about grower champagnes, you know, the, the rise of growers, or, you know, people will talk about, um, about uh, viticulture. So like the, the rise of organic champagnes, biodynamic champagnes, or, or just champagnes that are more sustainably grown, uh, right. more responsibly grown. Go back and tell people what grower champagne is, a quick so, definition. Uh, so historically, uh, growers have grown grapes and negociants or champagne houses have made and have bottled and marketed the wine. Um, just you know, very simply, uh, um, this uh, this is a model that that uh, continues to exist, and it's a model that worked for, that has worked very well in Champagne. But um, but at at certain points in history, there there uh, there were circumstances that caused growers to start producing their own wines from grapes that they, they grew themselves. So today when we talk about grower champagne or estate bottled champagne, we're really referring to to uh, you know champagnes that are being that are being made uh, by the same person who grew the grapes and you know, being made entirely from from estate grapes. Right. So it's an estate grown. Yeah. So that's what the um, growers because on the flip side there are large champagne houses which yeah, contract who, or who may have vines who in, in most cases own. have, have own vines themselves right. but who also purchase grapes um, you know purchase grapes or purchase wines uh, you know, from from other people so that's part of the transformation well the grower and you mentioned viticulture are, you know I want yeah, to keep going yeah we we are seeing i mean we're certainly we certainly see more growers uh, more grower producers today than ever before, and certainly more grower producers in the marketplace, um, in our marketplace, than ever before. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, the, but there, you know, there are other things. There are things like like single vineyard champagnes. You know, there are things like um, you know, like low dosage or no dosage champagnes. Uh, you know, let's champagnes that don't let's have, explain. So that, single vineyard. So most champagne is is a blend. Of, of of many things, right? Most champagne is a blend of multiple grape varieties. Sites, it's a grapes. blend of multiple sites, a blend of multiple vintages. Vintages, grapes. Right. Uh, um, today, more people are starting to break these things down, and so people have always made vintage champagne, right? So champagne that comes from a single year as opposed to, to a number of years. Um, you know, more and more people. Well, historically, uh, you know, Blanc de Blanc would be made out of a single grape. Chardonnay. Chardonnay. Today, more people are exploring the idea of what happens if I make 100% Pinot Noir or 100% Pinot Meunier. Um, you know, that's uh, that's less common in the past. Less common in the past. Okay. Um, but um, um, you know, and then also people are starting to to say, well, what happens if I make a wine from a single site? If I make it from a single village or a single vineyard within that village, instead of blending, you know, a number of sites together, how does that, you know, like you know, it's asking a different set of questions. Isn't it fair to say those practices existed in regular winemaking? You would sure. designate the vineyard, you would do a state, you would blend? Mm -hmm. um, yes. But that wasn't going on as much as a transformation now, right? Well, in Champagne, you know, Champagne has historically always been a blended wine. I mean, since before it was a sparkling wine. And there are good reasons for that. Um, one, Champagne is a very marginal climate, so uh, blending different areas is a, a sort of insurance. You know, um, um, because Champagne is such a cool climate, uh, blending wines often gives you more complexity and more depth in the wines. Uh, you know, certainly blending blending different vintages uh, you know, together, like that's again a sort of insurance, you know, against uh, a marginal climate. 
Um, today, uh, uh, I mean, blending is still relevant in champagne. Right. The, the, the vast majority of champagnes continue to be blended, and and they really should be. You know, it's it's um, you know I I think you know the idea of of champagne you know going into a Burgundian model is is fanciful. Right. Um, and and not necessarily it wouldn't necessarily make the best wines, but there are certain sites in Champagne you know, and certain producers who you know who are who are exploring single vineyard sites, um, you know that that are very exciting, and and that do have the potential for for making great wine. Right. And and that's exciting to see, but I think that all of these things you know I mean all all of all all of these sort of of you know things that we perceive as new, um, you know these all relate back to the idea of champagne as a real wine you know in historically champagne has been has been marketed more by brand than anything else right and and brand champagne the brand no, not the brand think, of champagne or or individual brands within champagne right, right? so you know so you buy Moet and Chandon or you buy Tattinger or you buy Krug or whatever you know right um, you're not really asking where that comes from uh, other than the region of champagne Less with champagne than even which, other wines. Which historically in France and in Europe in general, um, you know, wine was always sold by place, right? So, uh, um, you know, even even you know, like in in the old days, uh, you know, you would go into a French bistro, and and you would see on the wine list, you know, you would see like Chevrolet Chambertin and right. Chabot Musigny, and you know, and you would see like Prouilly and Moulin Avant, and right. and you don't see the name of the producer, you just see the name of the place, right? But then you like you know look down at the champagne section, and it's it says Moet and Chandon, and, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, it's it, it was always it was it was always uh, uh, quite unusual, you know, for France. So so two things. Um, the first is why do people not think of champagne as a wine? I mean, because of the way it's been branded and marketed. Yes, I think so. I think I think that you know when when you read so the the body of champagne literature historically is quite large, and and when when you read you know things from the nineteenth century and the early early twentieth century, the attitudes were quite different. In fact, um, you know the idea of 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 sight or the idea of individual terroirs within the Champagne region was always much more prevalent. And, I mean, terroir is important even in a blend. Even though Champagne was a predominantly blended wine, individual sites were still important, right? Um, you can only make a good blend out of good components. Right. And so, so people, you know, uh, uh, you know, people recognize the, the importance of, of individual terroirs. After about the 1960s, then... Uh, you see, you see attitudes, or I guess you see the marketing of champagne change quite significantly, to where it's um, um, where it's really brand oriented. Uh, production numbers go up, so you know, of course, when you have millions of more bottles to sell, then then. So, who had the most product, the most money to market, the most aggressive? Yeah, and that, and that played a big part after the '60s. I think that so. That started escalating. I think so. And, and that forced brand recognition, not champagne. Yeah. And and in fact, this did this did uh really good things for champagne as a whole, right? It it turned champagne into a worldwide phenomenon, right? Um so, you know, I mean, it's a winemaker's dream, right, to be to have to make a product that's uh, that's automatically associated with celebration. 
you know, this is this is money but in the bank. That sort of answered my question. That's why people don't think of it as a wine. Sure. They think of it as a celebratory I think drink. That, I think that the way that champagne was marketed uh, detracted from its qualities as a wine, or maybe pushed that into the background. Um, you know, not that people weren't making good wines, but but it 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 pushed that dialogue into the background. And on the consumer side, it made people forget that, you know, forget about champagne's qualities as a as a wine. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, as as a young retailer, I, I you know remember having having clients who didn't even realize that champagne was a wine, that didn't even realize that champagne was made right. from grapes, like like any other right. wine. You know? the, the thought never went into yeah, that. You, you just had one illusion of it, and that was it. Yeah. So. I, I guess if you and I could go back in time and started a consortium <laughs> and a little agency and marketed champagne as a wine and a beverage, we could have changed the whole landscape. I don't know if people would have bought in, know. but um, you know, it was, but they uh, didn't have that vision as a, as an area, right? I mean, <clears throat> yeah, we, you know, it, everything is a product of the times. And you know what's what's going on now in Champagne is is also a product of the times. It it, all, it reflects larger issues and larger you know like currents of thought that run through the the entire wine world. Right. It's you know not, nothing exists in a vacuum. And and you know Champagne Champagne certainly was not the only region in in Europe to embrace industrial farming and industrial winemaking. Right. I mean that was that was a problem everywhere. Yeah. And that was just a product of the times. Not so much in the Loire, but well, you know. All right, so let's talk about the book a little. The book came out about a month and a half uh, ago. Yeah, beginning of October. Beginning of October. It is a gorgeous box set. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's a beautiful, I guess you could say a tabletop book. It's boxed. There's the beautiful book, and then there's a little drawer with maps. Seven maps? Seven maps, yes. From Seven the 40s, maps. which, why did you choose those maps? They're still so, accurate portrayals. They are. They are for, for the most part. Um, these maps uh, are are kind of mythical in in the region. Um, so I mean, this goes back to you know to the idea of, of what we were talking about earlier that that in the past uh, uh, you know the vineyards vineyards uh, were much more important or or they they occupied a more prominent you know, space in in Champagne culture. Um, so in the 40s, there was a publisher, uh, Louis Larmont, who was commissioned by the INAO, the, the, you know, the, the official government body of, you know, of vineyard appellations, um, to, to create uh, these, these maps, these really detailed vineyard maps of all of France's uh, most important wine regions. And so he, he did you know, a series of these, so Bordeaux, Burgundy, uh, you know, the Rhone, the Loire. Um, and so one of these was Champagne. And... and uh, the the unusual thing about these maps is that they don't you know you can find regional maps of Champagne anywhere and in, in you know in, in lots of wine books, but what most people don't realize is that Champagne is broken down into into individual parcels just like just like other regions are just right. like Burgundy is right. you know and each of these parcels have names uh, you know each of these each you know each village has has hundreds of these these different parcels. And so these Larma maps uh, detail that in a way that that no no other maps. And do. I'm sure you looked at as many as you could find, right? Yes, yes. Um, I mean, this information, you know, this information is avail- is available to growers from you know the official like government, uh, you know. Right. Uh, I mean, but but it's not available to us as, as consumers. Right. And so so these maps were uh, were very rare. 
um, today they're they're extremely difficult to find and very expensive when you do find them. And I, I own an original set, and and so I guess you know my idea was because these maps were very useful in in my education of Champagne. I wanted to share them with with others and really kind of democratize they're, them. They're incredible. I mean, if I opened a French restaurant <laughs> that skewed towards champagne on the wine list, I think I'd put all the maps up yeah. on the wall. Yeah, there beautiful. was an old restaurant in New York. Um, I think it was Provence. No, not Provence. Um, I forgot the name. He had maps of Paris mm-hmm. and, and all over France. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you a base question because it'll set up where we're going, um, but. I need you to tell me, to tell our listeners quickly, how champagne is made. Let's sure. start with the fact that it's a wine, and so, the wine originates as a grape. Yeah. Quickly. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that, that's actually really important. So champagne is, is, is first made as a, as a still white wine. Um, so normally, um, depending on the size of your, of your production, you, know, you can make dozens of these or hundreds of these, of these base wines. Right. We call them Van Clair in, in, in the region. Um, so, so it's a still white wine of relatively low alcohol, let's say 11%, right? And, um, and so, so what's happening today more than in the past is that people are, 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 are increasingly like vinifying different vineyards separately. Um, so not only keeping grape varieties separately and keeping different villages separately, but also different parcels with, within each village to have a larger palette. Know, from so a larger collection of these base wines for the blending for blending yeah so uh, so in the spring when these wines are done then the winemaker uh, blends them so uh, you know tastes through them and so there's the blend there's three predominant grapes in champagne there are three yeah, there are three <clears throat> primary grapes primary yeah tell me what they are they are one is white chardonnay chardonnay and two are red so okay. pinot noir and meunier okay. Yeah, we some, all know Pinot Noir, yeah. the great Burgundy wine. Just quick, quickly tell me, Meunier is a red wine. Yeah, Meunier is a member of the Pinot family. It so, is. So uh, you you often hear it, you know, called what, Pinot Meunier. What characteristic? It tends to be softer, softer than, than, than Pinot Noir. It tends okay. to be, be rounder, um, uh, not as structured. It Meunier is very useful in Champagne because it's a very hardy grape. So it thrives in in climates and soils that that Pinot Noir and Chardonnay struggle in. Okay. Um, but what we're, we're seeing today is that when Meunier is treated seriously, when it's not just you know a workhorse grape, um, when you treat Meunier seriously, you can make some very very interesting wines. There's some hundred percent Meunier. Yes. Yes. All right. Um, so those are the grapes. Let's quickly so, how champagne is made. Yeah. So so champagne is blended. Um, you know, and and the blend can be according to you know. I mean, it's it's different you know, according to to Vintner every house, style, every, house yeah, style, every, right? every producer. Um, so champagne acquires its sparkle um, uh, through a second fermentation that occurs in the bottle, right? So, so these base these base wines are blended, and that that blend, um, this still white wine blend, is put into bottle with a little bit of yeast and a little bit of sugar. And the yeast consumes the sugar, um, and a byproduct of this fermentation is carbon dioxide. But because this is occurring in the bottle, then the carbon dioxide is trapped, and so that's how we get sparkle. Of course, these yeast deposits uh, you know, remain in the bottle. That is also very fundamental to the character of champagne. Um, so the, the aging of, of the wine on these dead yeast cells, which are called the lees. So uh, you know, champagne goes through this, this lees aging uh, in, in the bottle. Silly question, just for people to visualize. Mm-hmm. The bottle is tilted so the lees the bottle is go horizontal. down to the neck? Well, no, the bottle is sort horizontally. 
Horizontal. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the leaves need to be taken out before we before we drink the wine, right? right. Because we don't want to drink those. Right. So <clears throat> when that happens, then there's this elaborate process called riddling, uh, which is where the bottle is tilted and and the leaves are 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 carefully worked into the 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 neck of the bottle. The neck. So and riddling then, is where you move the leaves, yes. and eventually, go ahead. And then, uh, and then there's a process called disgorgement, which is where the bottle is opened, the leaves shoot out. You try not to lose too much wine, and then uh, that wine is replaced by uh, by a little bit of extra wine and possibly a dosage, which is a a, a mixture of sugar and wine. Right. Um, the dosage is historically very important in champagne. Uh, you know, people tend to think of it as an additive, uh, where really. Um, I view it, you know, in my book, I talk about dosage being like salt in food. You know, it's, we don't necessarily add salt to make our food salty. We do it to enhance right. other things that are going on. At you different know. levels. Some people sure. like a lot, a little. Sure. And so dosage fulfills a very similar function. It's not necessary to make a wine sweet. It's to, it's to make a wine more harmonious and it's to, it's to, to bring out other elements in, in the wine itself. People look at it as just adding sugar, but you... You eloquently said it adds to the harmony. It's yeah, it and plays it's a very added at different levels. Well, yes. So different style of wines and so dry every fruit. yeah. And it's not it's not just a matter of selecting like well you know I want a sweeter wine so I'll put more dosage right. or I want a drier one so I'm not going to put any. Right. You have to you have to respect the wine itself and and part of the job of, of the winemaker is to determine what level of dosage is ideal for that particular wine. Right. And the number itself really doesn't matter. I mean, today I think we get hung up on, on dosage. You know, people think like, oh, this has seven grams. Like, that sounds like so much. I, I don't want to drink it. Irrelevant. But it's a matter of the blend and the wine making and how it complements it and all of that. Yeah. Um, all right. So the dosage is added. Dosage is added, and then the and then the bottle is corked, and, and the leaves are out. The so leaves are out. Yeah. The, do well, some people filter? Not at this point. Okay. Uh, if if filtering occurs, it occurs before bottling. Got you. Mm. Uh, so at this point, you know, the bottle is is ready to be shipped, but it, it needs you know disgorgement and dosage. Uh, these are well, disgorgement is a is a traumatic right. uh, you know, stuff a, a, lying a, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's Physical. a traumatic action, you know, for, yeah. for the wine. Um, the dosage also needs time to integrate into the wine and harmonize. So, so at this point, um, the the wine needs to be aged for at least a short time and preferably a little longer time. Um, this is also something that that we haven't historically paid enough attention to is um, post disgorgement aging. You know, we talk about in Champagne we talk a lot about lees aging, but we don't talk about aging after disgorgement. Right. And and Champagne in fact uh, not only ages very well, but it actually needs time after disgorgement to, to right. really show its best. I know. I think it was Payard or somebody started listing the um, yeah very early on uh, in the eighties disgorgement yeah. post disgorgement mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. So that's Champagne. So like any wine, like Brunello has mm-hmm. to stay, you know, in the, the barrels and the bottles for a certain amount mm-hmm. of years mm-hmm. before it's released. The better wa- champagne makers will... will yeah, so, so uh, the minimum, uh, minimum aging for non-vintage champagne is 15 months. Um, and, right. And uh, minimum for a vintage champagne is three years. In practice, the better producers age their wines for much longer than right. that. But, right. but there are, yeah, there are rules. Right. Right, so the prevailing theme in the book that I picked up, and I know 
I'm right on this and you'll agree <laughs> with me, is terroir or place. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about it a lot, you know, with mm-hmm. vineyard locations and all that. Mm-hmm. Champagne's a pretty vast area, and you alluded to the fact that there's a lot of different, you know, areas and mm-hmm. all that. One thing I kept picking up on is chalk, 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 mm-hmm. chalk. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the terroir is so important to Champagne. Um, tell me why terroir for Champagne is so important. It took up a lot of the book. Sure. Sure. So, you know, I mean, this goes back to you know, this idea of treating champagne as a real wine and, and right. asking the same questions of champagne as we would of other wines and dealing with the same issues. For me, um, just, you know, when I think about fine wine and, and what, what, is the, what is the purpose of fine wine, what is the interest of fine wine, uh, it's, it's about ex- expressing the place that it was grown in. Right. So, so for me, terroir is fundamental to, to if, if, if a wine doesn't express, you know, if a wine doesn't tell me anything about where it's grown, then it's, it's a, you know, it, it, it's a manufactured product. It's it could be interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it can be delicious, but I mean, orange juice can be delicious. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a, why, why do we pay hundreds of dollars for, you know, particular bottles of wine? Right. And so, you know, champagne is, is. Uh, a terroir expressive wine, like any other, um, you know, we've we've sort of forgotten about that because uh, well, because one, um, we tend to think of terroir as only single vineyard wines, only in terms of single vineyard wines, which is which I think is incorrect. There's a diversity of terroir, and sure, and I think that blends. I think that that terroir definitely plays a role in in blends. Um, but so because champagne has, has been a blended wine, uh, you know we we don't talk about terroir as much. And then also because champagne has been so focused on brand, we don't talk about the vineyards. So this is part of the transformation. Absolutely. How terroir is being expressed, discussed. Absolutely. You know, vinified and yeah. all that. I mean, champagne is a huge place. It's, uh, it covers 34,000 hectares of, of vineyard land, and that's, that's a lot. And, Just, and can you give me a perspective? Like if you look at Burgundy or Bordeaux or parts of the Rhone, I well, mean, is it bigger, the same? So, I, I should know the answer. Well, no, I mean, Champagne, champagne is vast. So like, like for example, uh, so Epernay is about an hour and a half drive from, from Paris, right? right? If, if, you go, if you go east, east of Paris. Um, but the vineyards, the, the vineyards of Champagne stretch more than halfway. Really? So, so yeah. So the westernmost vineyards of Champagne are actually closer to Paris than to Epernay. Um, in in the north, it goes up to Reims, uh, and, and uh, you know that that's sort of the northern boundary. But then in the south, it goes all the way down to Chablis. So from my house in Epernay to get down to the southernmost vineyards of Champagne, that's a good two-hour drive. Wow. And so when you think about that kind of scale, you know clearly terroir is going to is going to differ over well over a chardonnay the grape closer to chablis has sure. to taste a has lot to, different absolutely than as you go north yeah you know towards epernay and I that's mean, the vastness necessarily and that's the terroir the terroir itself is it predominantly chalk or there's a handful of i know different areas sure. concentrate um the the majority of champagne lies on a very uh, on a bedrock of of chalk specifically Cretaceous chalk, uh, you know, uh, um, and the a lot of the differences in you know between between sites or you know areas or villages or or individual vineyards, a lot of the differences lie in the topsoil. So the depth of the topsoil or what the topsoil is composed of, um, you know, what what lies above that chalky bedrock. Right. 
in uh, in the eastern part and southern part of, of Champagne, it's actually not chalk. Here you have a much older soil, and and here down down in the Aube, in, in the Cote de Bar, you have Kimmeridgian, which is the exact same soil type as Chablis. So this is a, this is an older uh, right. older ge- geological you know, formation from from the Jurassic period, and and uh, and that creates a whole different sort of wine. In the western part of Champagne, the chalk, the chalky bedrock descends pretty far below the surface. So in the very western part of the Valley de la Marne, you're no longer talking about chalk. You're talking about different limestones and clays and, and th- other things that are going on. You you're know, on beyond the, the chalk, is well, what you're saying? Yeah, because the chalk is too far below the right. surface. But in the heart of Champagne, you know, for the, for the, the majority of Champagne, yeah, you're really talking about this, this bedrock of solid chalk. And is there something about chalk that imposes flavor or taste to champagne? I mean, is I is that so. a characteristic you're going to pick up in a champagne wine yes. because of the chalk versus yes? I mean, it's, it's, you know, this is a big debate uh, you know, today uh, <laughs> right. um, uh, about you know the whole idea of minerality and and um, and you know there 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 are people who are really bent on on demonstrating that. Actual minerals don't get transferred into it's a, a big debate. A, a vine, and people and have to use the word minerality yeah. as a descriptor. And so, therefore, what does that mean? Doesn't exist. You're right. Um, but the thing is, you know that that when when you taste, let's say, you know, in Champagne, when you taste a Chardonnay that's grown on chalk versus a Chardonnay that's grown on sand versus a Chardonnay that's grown on clay, these all taste very, very different. Right. And and they taste consistently different and identifiably different. Right. So. Yeah, so for me, I think that chalk, you know, really does bring a, a very distinctive character. I'm sure. Um, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Peter Leem. Peter's new book, Champagne, is out. It's available everywhere, Amazon, bookstores. Uh, when we come back, I want to ask Peter a couple more quick questions. I want to subject him to our wine list. We're going to do a special mm. champagne version. I'm sure Peter can give us some great recos. And then hopefully we'll have time. We're sipping a uh, champagne right now. We'll talk about it. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. We're back. 
We're back with my guest, Peter Leem. Peter's new book, Champagne, is out right now. We're talking about it. Before I subject Peter to our wine list, I wanted to ask him the best way to drink champagne. I'm interested in glassware. I'm interested in temperature. Mm. I'm interested when you look at it, what a big small bubbles mean, what's good. Um, How do you evaluate it? I mean, give me a quick primer on, let's do it right. Well, first of all, I think champagne is the only wine in the world that can be consumed at any time of the day or night. Agree. It's uh, and and that's that's uh, pretty marvelous on its own. Um, we, I think, we as consumers and also as, as you know, uh, as sommeliers and tradespeople, you know, people or service people, um, you know, we're we're recognizing that uh, that champagne can be treated as a real wine, and and so for example, glassware. This is a huge huge. Uh, Topic of discussion right now um, you know, among both consumers, you know, abroad and also you know Champenois in the region. Um, uh, you know, for most of the 20th century, champagne was served in flutes, um, which uh, uh, you know, which is great visually, but it doesn't do much. It doesn't do many favors to the wine itself. It's much better to serve champagne in a, a tulip glass or a white wine glass. The bigger um, opening on the top yeah, just, allows yeah, like you to appreciate the wine and for it to open. Sure. Like, you know, you wouldn't serve white burgundy in a flute. No. So, uh, you know, why would you serve champagne in a flute? Old tradition um, that didn't make sense. Sure. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, even today, oftentimes champagne is served way too cold. Uh, so don't I, refrigerate it. Well, uh, you can. You do need but to refrigerate it. But let it sit. But you know, treat it. Treat it like a white wine. Okay. Uh, you know, I for me, I think that not just with champagne, but with wine in general, the more complex the wine, the less you need to chill it. Right. Right. So, so Burgundy. If if I'm drinking a really simple, you know, like Bordeaux and Blanc, you know, yeah, serving a little colder, you know, with a plate of oysters, like that's great. Less nuances than yeah. a older. If, fan- if I'm drinking a Chevalier Monarchet, or you know, then uh, then I, I'm not going to I'm not going to serve it, you know, out of the freezer. Uh, right. I want you know, I, I want to taste the complexity of the wine. So cold, not cold. Yeah. It's chilled. The same with champagne. Think yeah. about it as a, you know as a. I don't mind it as room temperature at room temperature because I think a lot of yeah. the qualities come out. Yeah, in fact, I'm the same way. You know, I I'm I'm the guy who like leaves his champagne glass there through dinner and and you know, right. at the end like the wine's warm and yeah, you know you don't see any bubbles anymore, but it's delicious. When you look at the bubbles, is there any significance? To a lot of bubbles, a little bubbles, big bubbles, small um, bubbles. I know it varies. I, know. I mean, you know, we yeah, we, we we prefer small bubbles. Small bubbles. Okay. We, what's funny is that uh, so I mean there are people doing a lot of research in, into bubbles, um, but we don't actually know why like bubbles are small. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's no art to making it bigger or small. <laughs> well, people have, people have 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 said a lot of things you know, in the past in champagne, but um, but you know yes, we we prefer smaller bubbles. Okay. Um, younger younger champagnes. Uh, tend to have more bubbles than older ones, right? Right. Uh, but that tames down in time, right? Yes. Okay. And and what's happening today is that champagnes are overall um, being released younger. So there, there are more younger champagnes on the market than there were in the past. Right. So we tend to see champagnes with a lot of effervescence. We've, right. we've grown used to that. Right. Sometimes I think there's maybe too much, you know, and and yeah, when, too many when yes, you know, when you open a bottle of champagne, um, it's really frothy. You know, there are lots of bubbles, and you let it calm down a little bit, even just ten or fifteen minutes, 
and you know, the bubbles calm down, and you get a lot more of the wine. You know, and so don't be in such a rush when you yeah. drink it. And if you're smart, buy younger champagnes. Be patient. Be put patient. them away for put a few them away years. In the Absolutely. You know, once you build it up, Absolutely. you can go grab. All right. So, uh, regular wine glass, not cold. And chill to it. Um, let it open up and sit in the yeah. glass a little. You know, treat treat it treat it like you would any other wine. Small bubbles are good. All right, that's good advice. I want everyone to uh, abide by that, and you'll enjoy your champagne much more. Hi, right, Peter. We do this thing called the wine list. We ask our guests a bunch of questions. It's a it's called the wine list. This is going to be the wine list special champagne edition. Mm-hmm. Peter Leem. All right. So the first question is the same question we ask everybody: What are you drinking now? It could be champagne. What champagnes are you tasting? A region, mm-hmm. a style? Are, are there wines on your table right now that you're tasting more than others? Well, I think what I really like about champagne is its diversity, and we're having a we we have a more diverse picture of champagne today than ever before, and so that's really exciting to explore. Um, it's so. You know, we're seeing new growers in the marketplace every day. Uh, um, you know, it's it, you, there. There are new terroirs to explore. There, there, there are people like you know, like, like making making. So you're seeking out all these new opportunities. I am. I okay. am. So, so you know, tasting, trying to taste across the region, trying to you know, trying to to explore the region through you know through very site specific wines. But also, it's not just that. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's only a, a, a portion of what champagne is. I think that, uh, you know, blended champagnes, um, you know, and, and especially champagnes from, from well-known houses, uh, from, from high-quality houses, are better today than they, right. than they ever have been. They got their game up, too. And, yes, and so, and so these, these are also really exciting to, to taste as well. Okay. All right, next question is usually favorite wine and food pairing. Give me your favorite champagne and food pairing. Now, we have a rule on the Grape Nation. Yeah. Favorite wine and food pairing, you're not allowed to say champagne and oysters. Okay? <laughs> you yeah. can say that, but then yeah. what after that, well, is there something you've discovered, you matched, or something you know you yearn for? Give me that give me the Peter Lean yeah. champagne and food pairing that you go back to. Well, I think that that um, you know, one thing. Uh, again, uh, this relates to the diversity of champagne, and so and so champagne Good point. is is so much it's more not stylistically diverse than than we as consumers give it credit for. You make me feel bad. It's a silly no, question. It's, it's not a silly question, <laughs> okay. though. Because, but but so well, one champagne is extremely versatile as a food wine, right? Yes, because of its low that, low alcohol, that's because a of its high acidity, to be because of its effervescence. But then also you add on like the diversity of the wines available in the region, and then you have this huge palette from which to work, you know, and to to pair, uh, you know, champagne and food. But you know, there are certain things that champagne does very well at. Give me like, a favorite like of yours. Anything umami, okay. So like you know, mushrooms, Japanese food, um, anything that that is on the umami spectrum, you know, champagne is has a natural affinity with. You're the first person who ever said that. You know, there's champagne oysters, champagne mm-hmm. fried chicken. People well, think it's good with pizza. And and why, why does champagne go with oysters? Because oysters are so briny and they're right, so umami. Right, the salinity. Yeah. Um, with anything fried, champagne really excels. Fried chicken so is fried a great. fried chicken and champagne is one of the great, great food pairings of the wine world. 
David Chang does fried chicken, caviar, and champagne. <laughs> there you go. Not a bad there you deal. Go. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all it right. Was, so that th- those are that's a good one. Um, you don't have to go any further. Tell me, we ask people their favorite wine restaurant and or bar with special attention towards wine. Tell me your favorite wine restaurant or bar with special attention to champagne that you know you can go in, there's a selection, they're knowledgeable. Yeah. Give me some place in the States, New York. Yeah. I and mean, you know, in New York, in New York, we're blessed with this, uh, you know, um, as far as, as far as, as, uh, you know, great champagne lists. Um, it's become a Somme favorite. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I love going to places like Terroir, uh, you know, where, where, um, you know, you can always find excellent champagne to Paul drink. Paul and Saber do a great job Absolutely. with that. Um, you know, restaurants like, like Mylino and, and Marta, you know, have, have who, built who have the lists up really. Yeah. Who, who have really special champagne lists yep. and sell them, you know, for, for, uh, you know, for very fair prices. Yep. Um, you know, now, uh, Ariel has opened Ayers Champagne Parlor. Yes. Um, you know, New York is a very exciting place to, to drink champagne. And, so there's no and, uh, lack of people that focus seriously on it. Yeah. Um, you know, historically, I think uh, uh, more people focus on champagne outside the champagne region, you know, than, than inside. Right. But actually, so, you know, historically, there, there weren't always so many good places to drink champagne in champagne. That's gotten but, better. Yeah, but okay. I, I think you know now today, if if you go to Rans, uh, or if you know you come if you come and visit Champagne, then you know you have places like uh, uh, La Wine Bar, uh, which, despite the terrible name, they have an amazing <laughs> wine list. Of um, you know there are there are places like the Glue Pot, uh, you know, and and of course uh, the very best place in the world to drink Champagne, uh, you know, has to be Le Criere, um, which is spell one, it, please. Criere is C R A Y E R E S. Okay. It's uh, one of the fanciest restaurants in Champagne. It's one of the best, but um, but they have a legendary sommelier there, uh, Philippe Jamès. So that's a special. And place. he has put together a an incredible champagne list. Okay, all right, Peter. We have less than five minutes to get everything done, so we have two more questions, <laughs> and then let's quickly taste some wine. Do you have a favorite all-time champagne? Could you narrow it down to one or two? I don't. You I, don't. I, I, okay, I, I can't do that. I didn't think you could, <laughs> but. Either obviously, this is a dumb statement. Either you do or you don't, yeah, and I understand well, why you don't. Yeah. All right, now I I mentioned this to you earlier before we were uh, on air. Give me a couple of great value champagnes that mm-hmm. are accessible, mm-hmm. that are reasonably priced, and are delicious. Yeah, specific, um, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there. I mean, there there are certainly brands that you know that that. Are are you know very available uh, that 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 are really excellent. Um, you know, like some some non vintage champagnes that I really like right now. Um, uh, for example, Ruinart Blanc de Blanc. Ruinart, um, okay. you know, uh, uh, you know, for for a delicate, fresh, lively champagne. Uh, um, you know, I mean, this is excellent. Charles Heitzig um, is uh, you know on on a richer, more complex side of things, but an incredible value you know, for for what it is. Give me one more. Um, so two different styles already. Yeah, give sure. me a third style or. Uh, well, you know, so so these these are wines that are blended from um, you know from a uh, uh, larger number of places. Right. Um, if if you wanted to drill down more, you know, and, and get more like tightly regional champagnes. Um, you know some some other some 
some non-vintage champagnes from rural estates that, that I think are, are particularly great value are things like Charton Taillet, um, Berreche, uh, Pierre Peters, um, um, Villemar. Uh, you know, so I will post all of those there on the are, site. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there, there are... Um, I mean, champagne is is necessarily a little more expensive than other wines because of how no, it's made I know and aged. But, we, but there are we're looking about, for the value. Yeah, when you're talking about value, there's a lot to be found right now. Right. All right. So those are good choices. I'll post those. All right. We're going to wrap up every week. We taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip. This week, we're going to taste the Jacassin Seven Thirty Nine Extra Brut Champagne Non Vintage. I think it's from Famille Chiquet. Yeah, it's uh, um, the Chiquet family who are the owners. The wine currently retails for about 50 bucks. available at better wine stores. Quickly tell me a little more about the wine. I'm going to pour myself some. <laughs> so this is a really, this embodies a lot of, of the contemporary era in Champagne. You know, talk, going back to, to speaking about Champagne as a real wine, um, you know, so historically, non-vintage blends in, in Champagne uh, were, or at least conventional wisdom says that they were, they, they were made to be consistent from one year to the next. So whenever you're buying the brand that you like, it's always going to be the same. What Jackson is doing is throwing that whole idea out the window. And so, so each, each, uh, each new release has, has a new number. So this is 739. Next year is forty. Next year is no house style there. Everything and, and fluid. What, what, what their idea? Their idea is not to make a consistent blend from year to year, but to make the best possible blend that they can. So this one happens to be heavy on Chardonnay. It's like fifty-seven percent. Fifty-seven, twenty-one, twenty-two on the moon year. But maybe next year it'll be Pinot Noir dominant, or you know, it it, it depends. It depends on on the vintage. And it was made in. 2011, which was this not a based, great year yeah. in Champagne. So this is based on 2011, but it has a healthy it, amount of reserve wine. Right, you know, 37 percent. Yeah, I did to, a little research. Yeah, to I mean, you know, so really, the object of, of this cuvee is to is to make the very best blend that they possibly can, right, regardless so of style. Let's give it a quick taste. So color, you have kind of that light yellow straw. Yeah. So uh, uh, Jacasson is is famous for uh, for fermenting all of their wines in wood. In very large okay. oak casks, and that that gives the wine a little bit of color. Um, you Let, know, on, on let's both, go on the nose. On both the nose and palate, I think there's a certain richness, and that's that's very typical of Jackson's wines as well. I get a little citrus, lemon. I get a little I think apple. Here, I think here, because of the high high predominance of, of Chardonnay, you get more of those. You know, more of those things yeah. than than you than you might in another version of of Jackson's. Give me mouthfeel. So this it this this wine, even though it's it's very lively, it has you know has has plenty of acidity. It has has a very lively structure. It's still quite rich in texture. Yeah. And um, you know, part of that is is from from the fermentation in oak. Uh, part of that is is simply selecting you know very very ripe wines, uh, low yielding wines, um, but but that's also a hallmark a hallmark of the of the Jacqueline style right. is this this uh, this plushness of texture and a couple of descriptors on the palate. I think you see the effects of of lees aging, right? So you you get this yeastiness, right? But it's brioche it's, bread yeah. or yeast or something. But it's very much in balance. You know, it's it plays a supporting role to to the fruit and to other non-fruit elements in the wine, 
um, it it doesn't it doesn't overpower the wine. Right. And and I think that, that that's something that I really like. Right. I agree with that. Um, do we like this wine? I like it a lot. This is a good um, wine for around 45 50 bucks. I think so. Okay. Uh, yeah. And Jacassin, like you said, each year, $739, they will do a 40 There's past ones. They'll yeah. do the best yeah. with what's going on that year. Um, classic pairings as a sparkling champagne or... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you could you could do this with you could do this with a lot of different things. But I think being being on the richer side of the spectrum, uh, uh, you know, I think that this wine has has the body and the depth to pair more with like you know, with richer foods, like right. more white meats, more fish, you know, rather than like oysters Good. or canapes. Right. Or, Good know. to know. All right, Peter, we're running out of time. We got to wrap up. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. If you have a question, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Um, I will post Peter's wine list answers, and there were some good ones in there. Um, I will list the wine we drank, the Jacassin, our weekly wine sip. Um, Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and Twitter at benruby. Peter, your book of, is available, I'm assuming, on Amazon. It is. Just click and yes. buy. Anywhere books and are sold. And anywhere <laughs> books are sold, better bookstores. If people would like to follow Peter Leem on social media, they could follow you where? I'm on Twitter, at uh, Peter Leem. P-E-T-E-R-L-I-E-M. Yes. And Instagram. Same uh, thing. Same handle. Okay. And we didn't talk about it a lot, but your champagne website is champagne guide one word champagne guide.net and that's a subscriber based thing it's a subscription it's a subscription site okay yes. worth every penny if champagne mm-hmm. is something that's your interest your wheelhouse or you want to know more so champagneguide.net um, thank you peter for coming in during this busy time good time of the year i don't like to make champagne a celebratory yeah. thing but we're all but celebrating still, we're all thinking all about champagne now um, thank you to our engineer. We have David sitting in today. And thank you to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.